listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Tenor Matthew Polanzani and conductor Emmanuel Villome are backstage at Lyric. This house is like a home house to me. I mean, uh, I went through the Young Artist Program here. I grew up in the Chicago area. I, I, I feel quite at home here and with this staff. And when I found out that it was going to be Emmanuel conducting, I knew that I was going to be in good hands. I knew I was going to be with someone who wanted to make music. I knew I was going to be with someone who didn't want the orchestra to be blasting all night long. I guess it's one of those operas you want to see and hear if you have never been to the opera. Mm. Because it, you experience all possible emotions of human life stylized by a genius. Thank you for listening to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. This time we're featuring an audio transcript from the Lyric Opera of Chicago Discovery Series session for the Tales of Hoffmann by Jacques Offenbach. For those of you not familiar with the Discovery Series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, directors, conductors, and scholars from Lyric season. Lyric usually does one session per opera, and they frequently take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public and is a terrific way to get up close and personal with Lyric's artists. For tickets and more information, visit lyricopera.org. All of the Discovery Series sessions are recorded and can be heard as part of this podcast series. And now let's hand things over to Lyric Opera of Chicago dramaturg and broadcaster Roger Pines for this Discovery Series session with Matthew Polinsani and conductor Emmanuel Villome. Roger? Good evening, everyone. I'm Roger Pines, dramaturg at Lyric Opera of Chicago. I'm delighted to welcome you to our first Discovery Series session of the season devoted to Jacques Offenbach's The Tales of Hoffmann. We're presenting this opera in its first lyric production since 1982. I want to remind you first to turn off your cell phones, alarm watches, and anything else that beeps. I am so looking forward to our discussion tonight because our two guests are so extraordinary. They have an, a remarkable affinity for the French repertoire, and that has everything to do with the success of the production in the opening performance last weekend. And those of you who have not seen the Hoffmann yet are in for a really remarkable experience in the theater. Um, the leading man of our tales of Hoffmann... Aha, that's a phone that's about to be turned off, I hope. Um, the leading man of our tales of Hoffman is both a Wilmette native and a Ryan Opera Center alumnus. Matthew Polanzani's Hoffman is his fourth leading role at Lyric. In recent seasons, he's been our Belmonte, Alfredo, and Romeo. Among his successes in French repertoire have been Romeo at the Met and Des Grieux for the Covent Garden tour to Japan. At the Met, he's triumphed in a hugely varied repertoire since his first starring role there, which was Lindoro in L'Italiano in Algeria a decade ago. 
So he's a hugely praised guest artist with the major companies of Paris, Salzburg, Munich, Vienna, and Florence. He's been heard with all the leading American opera companies and the major orchestras of Chicago, New York, Boston, Cleveland, and Los Angeles. He's been honored with two of the most important awards an American singer can win, the Richard Tucker Award and the Mets Beverly Sills Award. He can be heard in a wonderful solo CD of list songs with pianist Julius Drake, and his DVDs include the Mets Don Pasquale, De Meisterzinger, and Fidelio. We're lucky to have one of the greatest French operas led by a French conductor, our great friend Emmanuel Villon. He made his company debut with Sanson et Dalila, and he has since returned for Manon and the Merry Widow. Maestro Villon is currently artistic director and chief conductor of the Slovenian Philharmonic Orchestra, as well as chief conductor of the Slovak Philharmonic Orchestra in Bratislava. He recently comp- completed a decade-long tenure as music director of Charleston's Spoleto Festival USA. Later this season, he'll return to Washington National Opera for Werther. Among highlights of the past few seasons have been appearances at the Deutsche Oper Berlin, the major houses of Turin, where he led Hoffmann, Marseille, Madrid, and Buenos Aires. He's previously led productions at the Met and in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Santa Fe, Paris, and Toulouse. He's had great success with leading orchestras of North America, such as those of Boston, Montreal, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Detroit, and those of La Scala, Radio France, Bonn, and Sydney. I've spoken with both of these gentlemen about Hoffman before. They are incredibly insightful on the subject, so I know we're in for a memorable discussion. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Emmanuel Villome and Matthew Polinsani. Hi. Okay. <laughs> the, the capsule version, since we haven't done this opera since 1982. At a Nuremberg tavern, the poet Hoffmann and his friends gather during the intermission of a Don Giovanni performance starring Stella, Hoffmann's new Inamorata. Rather than returning to the theater, Hoffmann entertains the eager group with tales of his misadventures in love in which he is himself menaced by three devilish villains. He tells first of Olympia, when he put on magic glasses provided by the inventor Copelius. He believed the girl was human, but she turned out to be a mechanical doll broken into pieces as Copelius's revenge on his rival Spallanzani. Hoffmann then tells of a fragile soprano, Antonia, who, encouraged by the sinister Dr. Miracle, literally sings herself to death. In Venice, Hoffmann loves the faithful courtes- faithless courtesan, Giulietta, who's lured away by a diamond ring promised to her by the magician D'Apertuto. Stella finally comes to the tavern after her performance to see Hoffmann, but she finds him in a drunken stupor. She leaves on the arm of Counselor Lindorf, Hoffmann's fourth nemesis. Is that all right? Is yeah, that, that covers it. <laughs> so they don't need to go to the opera. <laughs> That's right. Well, so, gentlemen, how do you describe the appeal of this piece, especially to someone who hasn't seen or heard it before? Do you want to go first? <laughs> yeah. Now, it's, it's a fantastic piece in the sense that it's so many pieces in one piece. Uh, Hoffman loves three women in one woman, and I, I guess you didn't make that clear in the way, the way you told right. the story, because the, 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 the doll, the courtesan... And the singer, in fact, are maybe only one person, which is Stella, Stella. the actress, and who is also um, singing Don Giovanni. Uh, and in that piece, you have the, an incredible operetta, 
comic opera of done by the master of the genre, the guy who was the, the, the most talented to do this, which is the Olympia act. Uh, but you have also a very romantic, serious love story in the Antonia story with a music that is extremely elaborate, very, very romantic, very expressive, very poetic. And you have something which is almost surrealistic between the Giulietta and the, and the Olympia act. So you go through a rainbow of emotions that go from, from incredible passion to despair, anger, uh, uh, craziness... Uh, success, elation, depression, everything is there. And musically, everything is expressed to that way, from the tiniest, uh, uh, most sensitive and, and, and very well-sought feeling to grandeur and to craziness. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very rich, rich uh, uh, evening. And um, I guess it's one of those operas you want to see and hear if you have never been to the opera. Mm. Because it, you experience all possible emotions of human life stylized by a genius. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And also, just to say, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but interesting that Offenbach was able to, to vary the musical style to suit the mood of each scene. I mean... Um, you know, in Olympia, and he's in love with this doll, but the, and the music is very light and fluffy. You know, I mean, it's uh, obvious that this is a surface kind of love affair, purely lust. Obviously, they don't know each other. They don't know anything. You know, he's he's seen her, and he's in love with her, and he believes he loves her. And then for Antonia, just he was saying, you know, it's 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 full of just beautiful, yeah, juicy. I think that's the word you use. I mean. I mean, really, you know, and this is, it feels like real, yeah, did you say juicy? I, I don't would know never say I, juicy, yeah, I'm right, French. Right. <laughs> Actually, he's right, he's a Frenchman, he wouldn't say that. <laughs> no, but you know, it's interesting, and then, and for Julieta, it, it's, it's, it, it's it, the music is, I mean, all three styles are totally mm. different from each other, and it's like watching three operas in, in one opera, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, the same, or four, really, yeah, if you include that At the that same form. time, in the Olympia Act, there is something that is not only comical. There's also a genuine... You, you have, you, I feel for, for, for Hoffman, especially in the way you sing it, uh, uh, when you say, ah, vivre, this is real love. Yeah. This is misguided love, but maybe any love is misguided, you know? <laughs> so, That's you know, another conversation. Yeah, I, yeah, think, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but there is something that, that's... And in the, in the act of Antonia, you have the French aria, which is maybe the most hilarious thing in the whole opera, mm. where it's totally <coughs> comedy. So the, the tragic side of life is the other side of the coin, which is a smile and a laugh. Mm. You know, so the twos are very much the two of the two things are very intertwined, and musically too, they are very intertwined. Well, interesting also that you talk about Franz being perhaps the funniest moment in the whole his aria, which is which explain who he is. Yeah, Franz is a servant of uh, he's Anto It's in the scene with Antonio. So this uh, Antonia, which this scene is the real love scene. This is when Hoffman actually has a chance to be with someone real, and uh, so it's in some ways the most. Um, you know, he has the most. Yeah. yeah, he has the most to lose. And Franz is a servant of Antonia's father. Okay, so what's interesting? What I was going to say was, you know, 
This scene, he's right. This is probably the funniest scene in the whole opera. This, it's just, it's, it's great. But also in this scene is um, uh, is is uh, Doctor Miracle and this music, Doctor Miracle. You know, I mean, the music that uh, what what he does to Antonio, what he does to Hoffman and Crespel. I mean, for me, it's it's the most serious, it's the most grievous harm inflicted on Hoffman in this scene, considering the fact that the love. I mean, yeah, Hoffman's in love with Olympia. He's in love with her, but it's a different kind of love. He actually knows Antonia. He he knows her, and and he's in love with not just you know who she is, but she he thinks she's beautiful. All these things, but so he has the most to lose in this scene, and the fact that he puts the 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 funniest aria, which and very light thing, along in the same act as the the uh, as as the uh, as as Hoffman and Antonia, uh, where he has the most to lose. And it's just interesting, a nice juxtaposition. It makes the, the tragic even more Brings it into better focus, and yeah. It, it gives it all its shades and energies. Mm. The two of you are making my life very easy. This is really <laughs> such a joy just to listen to this. Um, there was a real Hoffman, E.T.A. Hoffman, the German poet. So I wanted to ask both of you, is awareness of his life and career particularly important for somebody who's involved either conducting or singing this piece? Well, he was a drunk, so what do you know about this? <laughs> <laughs> Not as much as I probably should, maybe. But <laughs> no, but, no, I can't say, I mean, I read the stories. It wasn't recently that I read them. The one thing I remember most, uh, the strongest recollection I have from them is that I don't think the opera hues very closely to the actual stories. You know, I mean, um, there are elements, but, uh, you know, I can't say, I mean, I, 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 it's hard for me to judge what, how I, what kind of success I had in creating the character of Hoffman, considering the fact that I'm, I'm singing him, you know, I mean, it's hard for me to say, but I can say that I don't have a strong knowledge of who Offenbach was or who Hoffman was. I do have, I think, an intimate um, knowledge of this music and how it affects me and how it affects the people around me and how what the people say, what they're mm -hmm. saying to me and about me. How that, I mean, I have a strong feeling there. I don't know, for you, maybe yeah. it's different. No, this, I think this is, this is a, a, a good answer um, because the Hoffman of uh, Kondofman of Offenbach uh, is somehow a character in itself. You know, mm. so so if you if you know the opera and only the opera, you already have access to a character that is actually very well defined in the opera itself. Mm. And the real E.T. Hoffman was quite different than the Hoffman depicted by by uh, by Offenbach. I think what is interesting to know, but not necessarily even to perform the piece, but if you want to to understand uh, uh, the piece from a music musicological point of view, at least. Um, is to understand, what is important is to understand why Offenbach chose that very character of uh, E.T. Hoffman. And E.T. Hoffman was not only a drunk, he was also a very important lawyer. We were uh, in the Constitution Court in, in um, I think it was in Karlsruhe already in the time, um, and uh, a poet, um, and a, a, a musician, yes. and a very good composer. Uh, and he was a man of many, many, many talents um, and uh, who, who had a dark and tragic side like all artists, um, most of them, uh, and, but who got very successful until a certain point in his life. He's also totally, he represents uh, the, born of, the, the birth of romanticism 
in, in, in European culture, not only in, in, in German culture, uh, but with an element that touched to what we call the, the fantastic. Uh, would you say fantastic also mm-hmm. in, in English? And uh, which is that kind of thinking, reality and taking actually reality in what it has of most real and then twisting it, pushing it enough so it brings you to territories where you don't know anymore what's true and what's not true, mm. but it's incredibly human and it's very revealing of human nature, of human passions. And that's why the doll act is so interesting in many ways because this is once more telling us a lot about how foolish we, were, we are in our lives. We, we you know, oh, could, how could he be in love with a doll? But aren't we sometimes projecting things in people and situations without knowing people and situations, mm. you know? And, 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 and the, the way, at the same time, he is maybe the only person who is real in the scene of man because you are in this Paris salon with bourgeois just waiting to, to drink and, and eat and we are very snobby and uh, we pretend they knew it was a doll from the beginning although we are not sure they know from the beginning it's a doll then we are mocking everybody he's the only real man and he's totally wrong and he's a fool but he's totally real. So that aspect of things is very interesting, and it's part of the romanticism. I mean, we don't understand romanticism in general if we don't understand realism, and if you don't understand also surrealism. And I think you have that in some of the writing of E.T. Hoffman, and that's what was very interesting for Offenbach himself. Mm. With, at the same time, a criticism of the society, an incredible knowledge of human nature, and a face in the redemption of art through all the sorrow, all the tragic, all the, the, the unnecessary uh, uh, um, pain of love and life. The only thing that can help you go through this and be in another dimension is creation. Um, and that's something that's very true with E.T. Hoffman. That's something which is true with Offenbach. And I think ultimately that's the message, if any, of uh, the, this piece. This piece for a tenor I've always thought was um, just a, an extraordinary goal, it seems to me, a momentous occasion of first Hoffman. So, Matthew, how, what did it take for you to conclude that the time had come to take hmm. this on. Well, it's interesting because I, when I got the I, when I got the offer, <clears throat> the first thing I did was I I, uh, I called up one I called my voice teacher, and I called my there are two coaches who I work with quite a bit in New York, and people who I've worked with long many years, and and um, I said hey I got this offer. Uh, I think I'm going to be the right age. I think I'm going to be the, at the right point. I think I'm going to be. You know, these are all, it's all supposition. You, we don't really know. But in the, if you, you know, I have a little plan of, of what I'd like to be doing at, a certain, at certain places. And I felt like this was a fit in this time, for this point in time in my career. But the easy thing to do was to call my teacher, call my coaches and talk with them about it. See what they had to say and see, you know, and everybody's immediate response was, oh, yes. This is this is the right thing, and it's the right time, and it's the right place. Especially con- considering this house um, is like a home house to me. I mean, uh, I, I went through the Young Artist Program here. I grew up in the Chicago area. I I, I I feel quite at home 
here and uh, and with this staff. And um, and when I found when I found out that it was going to be Emmanuel conducting, then I knew that I knew that I that I had. You had to go home. No, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to say it while you were sitting there, but <laughs> no, you know, I mean, I knew that I knew that I was going to be in good hands. I knew I was going to be with someone who wanted to make music. I knew I was going to be with somebody who didn't want the orchestra to be blasting all night long. And um, you know, this is a real. Con- this is a. It's a. It's a it's a real concern anyway for a tenor because it's a long night, and um, and in this particular case we have three or four sopranos, three sopranos who are performing the three the three heroines, and at least we have the same villain throughout the whole piece. Mm-hmm. But many times you'll get you'll get it where there's three sopranos and two villains, and one guy who does one two of them, and one, you know I mean so Hoffman's the only guy who's on the stage all night long. And in this particular production, he, yeah, I mean, he almost never leaves the stage practically. Only in, in the Anto- only in Antonia scene, he gets to go off for about twelve minutes. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, how long? And you counted each yeah, minute. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. No, but I mean, it's What's so. The I, I'm staying the whole evening. I know. Well, you could conduct a little faster, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah. No, but you know, it's so it was. Oh, you want a, those twelve minutes to be longer? That's so what I want. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's right. No, I mean, and so I once I. I knew that it was. I knew that it was in the plan of things that I wanted to be doing at the age that I'm at, and in my as my, you know, in my development of my of singing and such. I knew that it would be that it, I thought it would be the right thing. So um, you know, and after getting confirmation from my teacher and from my coaches and such, you know, I talked with a couple. I talked with a couple of people who I trust and who know my voice and who've known my voice for a long time. You know, I knew it was okay to say yes. So. This is after having done Romeo on the stage and having done Degria on the stage. I hadn't done Degria yet, oh, oh, but I hadn't. did have. I had plans to do it, right. but I hadn't sung it yet. Right, right. But I mean, Degria is not far from this guy in terms of the um, the weight of the ra- of the role. It's not as long. I mean, it's it's a long evening for him, but not like this. Oh, um, heavier. Yes. Heavier, yeah. No, and I mean, I don't think. You know, it's funny, but I don't think stamina. of it. Stamina-wise, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Hoffman is a longer, is much longer. But the thing is, I, I don't tend to think of it that way, because I, do, I believe that I have a technique. I believe that I have a voice which should work. You know, I mean, we always hope. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, uh, no, you know, I mean, we're human, but. Uh, you know, so for me, it was more a matter of: is this the right thing at the right time? And um, and it seemed like it was. So, uh, you know, I, I, was it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, Emmanuel, did you come to Hoffman as far as conducting performances fairly early on? Have you been with yes with this piece uh, quite a while? Um, I. Actually, it was one of the first pieces I conducted in the States, too. So it's about uh, more than 15 years ago. Uh, and I have done uh, seven, eight productions of the piece. Now, did you come to this piece having conducted other Offenbach? Yes, I have conducted other Offenbachs. I have conducted um, Barbe Bleue, Vie Parisienne, Orphée aux Enfers. Now, are those, and Monsieur Choufleury and so on. Yeah. Are those pieces at all, did, do they prepare you at all to conduct Hoffman, or is Hoffman so radically different? Hoffman is definitely radically different in the sense that it's the only grand opera or serious piece, or let's say work that's not in his production a comic uh, work yeah. that has been successful. 
that is not to say that he didn't try before. He always wanted to, to write that serious grand opera. He wanted to be taken as a composer that was a grand composer, a compositor uh, uh, that, that, that would really uh, stay in posterity, not only for being the, the funny guy, you know. Mm. Um, but it never worked. <clears throat> Nobody was interested in, 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 in his serious music. And one of the reasons people, I think, were not interested in his serious music is that he was so good with the other music. Mm. Even this guy was incredibly successful. And so the, this idea that his career was difficult, of course it was difficult like for any composers, but he was an extremely successful composer. He had been boss of several, you know, theaters. Uh, and and um, his music was regarded as light music, but very intelligent and very smart music. Mm. And the smart people knew that in lightness, you can have a depth that some other people don't have when they are trying to be serious. So there is, there is an achievement in the comic uh, a composer, uh, uh, Offenbach, that is the work of a genius and that should not be looked down. Um, but this piece, to answer your question, has a different tonality in the sense that uh, he is putting all the music he had in himself. And when I say the music, it's all these feelings about life, feelings about the meaning of being here and there with other people put together with an incredible energy and generosity. So you have in that piece enough material for 10 operas, 10 mm. serious operas, enough. And it's Packed, packed with all of this and expressed by a man who knew theater so well and who had a sense of melody, who had a sense of panache and drama. Um, so uh, uh, um, I suppose, on the other hand, to answer your question, if you don't know the comic aspect of his writing, you are probably going to miss a few points on what Offenbach is doing with the piece. Uh, that means that if you know your traditional French opera, uh, you probably will not have any problem conducting the piece. But if you are missing the irony that he's at every turn in the piece and that is very specific to that composer, I think you are missing one dimension. I'm wondering if anyone in the audience has had any experience of, of going to performances of the other Offenbach works because I really want to recommend them. If you go to Hoffmann and you decide, this is so wonderful that I want to hear more by this particular composer. You know, they're, they're very seldom done in this country. Right. But there are marvelous video, DVD performances of La Vie Parisienne, especially Orpheus in the Underworld, and um, and Perry Cole, so you can mm. you can and Grand Duchess of Gerolstein. Those are the yeah, yeah those are the four biggies, and so I highly highly recommend those. I th- I saw well, the first time I saw Orpheus in the Underworld. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen on a stage. What yeah. oh, when I when I saw Orpheus on Fair, Orpheus is, is it hilarious. Is, it's priceless. Hilarious. Um, Matthew, I want to go back to the challenges of your role. I mean, you start off with an aria which is. It really is an aria in two parts, in two extremes, because you have the lively storytelling and then you have this sort of emotional reverie. So can you set up that aria for us and tell us what you need to convey on stage so early on in that piece? Well, it's interesting because he... uh, (laughs) Hoffman kind of has a little detached 
moment where he sort of steps outside of himself in the middle of this. He's just, uh, the, his friends have said, right, let's have a song, you know, like we always do every time we go to the bar. And, um, and uh, let's have a song. And he starts off in this song, and uh, it's all going along so nice. And it's just a little fluffy tale about a, about a monster called Kleinzak. And, um, and, and, but something, some phrase in the piece gets him thinking about his love woes in particular. I mean, it's funny, you know, we, we didn't talk about this that much, actually. Right. I, I assumed that, uh, that, that he, was, he was thinking of Stella in this moment, you know, or, or at least of the woman who he is, his ideal I guess. Isn't there only one word that sort of <coughs> sets him up? Because he's, he's talking about sa figure. Sa figure and the yeah. word figure just sort of starts Yeah, it him gets go. him, he, he gets, he, 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 he has a little bipolar moment. You know, I mean, really, you know, he, 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 he steps outside of himself. He steps out, he, his mind goes someplace else completely. And everyone looks at him on the stage like, what, what, what? What you know? I mean, are are you okay? You know, I mean, he's uh, and so he's he's in this moment where you know the guy is he's drunk and he's depressed. You know, I, it's a hard life for this guy. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, he's he's not a happy man, and um, and and so you know, he, I think little fugue states like this are probably happen often for him. You know, and um, he's probably needs Prozac, and uh, you know, I mean, uh, but well, you know, I mean, we joke, but I mean, it's you got to feel bad for the guy, who's uh, I, I mean, he tries so hard, and all he really wants is to be in love with the right woman, and he just he hasn't, he just can't figure yeah, out who the, it is. From you know? the beginning, we understand that it's not about the woman; it's about him being in love. Somehow. Oh yeah, well, so, and getting it back. Yeah, yeah. And je la vois belle, belle comme yeah. le jour, and we don't know who it is. Mm. And in fact, the fact we don't know who it is is just a testament to the fact it's just him being in love right. for reasons that have to do with his pathology or something like that. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, and and it, you know, I was saying earlier, it's the piece has a lot of areas where even when you've done the piece, I I, I probably have done fifty performances, if not. 80 performances, I don't know, of the piece, there are still moments where you're saying, what's happening on stage? Oh, I don't yeah. get it. You know, who is, okay, so this person <laughs> went to that room because he knew he would find the other one in the other act, in the other room. I just, you get so confused. But I think it's on purpose, in a way. Mm. There is, there is a, an, an element of ambivalence, ambiguity, that is just there. Um, and this moment where he's totally losing it in the first aria is a moment of incredible beauty at the same time. Oh, yeah. Because he's, he's flying high there and, and he's taking us in a place we don't know where it is, but it's vivid, it's vital, it's incredible. No, for him, it's, it's one of the most real moments. As, uh, he is in a few, he's outside of himself, but this is like, this is what he is searching for. We spend the next three hours looking for this thing. This is what he wants. And, uh, of course, he doesn't, I don't know. I can't say that he really finds it in this ver- in this opera. He doesn't find it, or maybe he finds it in Antonio, but it's it's taken away from him. It's tragically you know? taken I mean, it's tra- by this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know. So uh, I mean, it's just a very yeah. Yeah, you got to feel bad for the guy. After yeah. after that aria, you have two more. You have one in the in the uh, Julietta act. Well, you have one very brief one, and then a longer one in the Julietta act. Um, 
and you have an aria in the Antonia, uh, the Olympia act, and then you have a very powerful trio for, to sing with two other men. So of all of those individual numbers, what is the most challenging? Hmm. Yeah, you know, they all offer different things for, for me as a technician, anyway. Sing, as a singing technician, they all offer different things. I would say the, perhaps the hardest thing is maybe the, the second aria in the Giulietta act, um, mm-hmm. which which just has a has a testator that 's quite high, and then it kind of goes higher, and then finally he decides to go a little higher <laughs> and uh, you know and, and, and it's he is, he is pouring out again pouring out this uh, something that comes from this ideal, this woman who he wants juliet is not it, but he 's so desperate that he thinks hey she 's crying I, I, she's, she must love me." And it, that's that's what gets him, you know. He sees her crying, and he thinks, he thinks she loves me, you know. I mean, he's th- that desperate that a woman crying because because mm-hmm. she's saying, "Ah, oh, don't leave," mm-hmm. you know. That that is enough for him to believe that he's in love. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this moment he's pouring out this this emotion and this and this. He's so he hopes so bad that this is finally it, and um, so that on top of. The tessitura of the of the vocal line, which is a climbing line, um, yeah, those two things in particular, but I would say. I, I must say, I mean, from all the Hoffman uh, I have worked with, uh, Mathieu is by far the one that never gives you the impression it's difficult or that the voice is under any kind of pressure. Yeah, it please. always feels incredibly comfortable, and at the end of the performance, you say, "Okay, we can. You can go for another round." You know, it's, just, <laughs> it, it's fine. You know, uh, it's it. That's absolutely remarkable, and the voice is so supple and so flexible when it needs to be very soft and just moving like velvet in the air. It's there, and when you need the metal, it's there too. So you know, really, <laughs> give me that check now, Matthew. <laughs> well. Thank you. you know, no, it's it's true. It's true. Yeah, and and um, uh, uh, this is I have I've sung. I mean I've sung. I've, I've conducted the piece with a lot of people, and and um, sometimes it was very difficult for them. I and mean, mm. when huge names really got in trouble with that part mm. because it's so incredibly long and taxing. And you have to be able to sing with different type of technique, I suppose, mm. for for the evening. I just want to say that in the broadcast booth um, on Saturday night, you know, my uh, our host, my colleague uh, George Preston from WFMT, he is a former singer. I sing also, and so the two of us are sort of relating technically to what Matthew is doing on stage. And he would take a phrase and would shape it like a sculptor with this incredible elegance and care and grace. And there would be a phrase where George and I would look at each other and we'd just go. <gasps> You know, because it was just the most exquisite right. experience. So that's, that's the good. when you hit the red button and there was nothing in the air for yeah. ten minutes. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Of course. <laughs> um, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, in our previous conversations about the piece, the one word that you used um, very frequently was imaginative. How imaginative often Bach is in the score. So how does that imagination emerge for our ears? What, what, do, we, what do we listen to where we can say, oh, that's his imagination at work? Uh, um it depends from which point of view you 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 tackle the question. I think there is, uh, as I said earlier, there is really 
raw material of incredible density every page. Mm. You, have, you have new ideas uh, uh, always uh, presented to you. Um, and at the same time, uh, things take a turn you didn't expect all of a sudden. You know, you, you, an aria goes in one direction, up, it takes you somewhere else. So it's incredibly uh, rich um, and um, always... You never feel it's like he had he had an idea and he tried to develop it and use it and use it all, all along. You know, I mean, it's, uh, and and composing is sometimes about that. I mean, the whole fifth symphony, pa 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 pa. Then you hear it for forty five minutes and and you are still captivated by it. Mm. In the case of Offenbach, it's pa 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 pa, and then it's something else, and then it's something else, and then it's something else. And you, but you 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 never feel like there is a shortage of incredible genius uh, invention. Uh, now, his melodies are very simple. Uh, they are very elegant in their own ways. Um, and uh, the, the, the way he's building each act is absolutely stunningly masterful in the development. Uh, and there he's using imagination too. Uh, now, when it comes to the orchestra, people make a big mistake because I, I read even a few days ago, oh, he's so wonderful in his orchestration, which has such a, a touch of Offenbach. Offenbach didn't orchestrate the piece, okay? So, uh, because he, as, as, as you, as Roger knows, but some people don't even know, he didn't even see the premiere of the piece. The premiere was in 1871. He died uh, in 1870. Uh, the only time he heard the piece somehow sung was in his living room. Uh, he was at the piano and he had just invited friends to sing the, the, the whole piece. So we actually don't know exactly how he was uh, going to really finish the piece um, and he had just done the orchestration of part of the Olympia Act and part of the prologue. Uh, and the, the orchestration has been done by, um, by Giraud, uh, who is uh, the composer who also did the orchestration of the Recits for Carmen, another piece that was premiere uh, at, the, at the Opera Comique and whose composer died uh, just a few weeks after the premiere. I mean, Offenbach, uh, uh, Bizet. Yeah. So given that it's Giro's orchestration, what sort of, instru- what sort of highlighting of, of instrumental colors does he use that we as audience can be listening for that's just particularly characterful or interesting? Um, I, I think Giro uh, captured one of the ideas of Offenbach, which is um, you, you, you let one woodwind have a melody, and the strings just very simply accompany it. So there is something very, very honest and simple about it. Um, uh, so that's typical. Um, the harmony, in a way, it, with Offenbach is um, uh, the, the chord, you know, you, let's say in a normal harmony, you have chords that go with three notes or four notes together. And the notes can be doubled, and they are uh, put together from bottom to top with a certain way of putting more notes on the bottom, in the middle, or in the top. With Offenbach, you just have the bottom and the top, and in the middle there is not much, which is totally what one should not do if you're a good composer. Mm. But that's what he is doing. 
And that's his style. So there is a certain bitterness, there is a certain greenness in what he's doing that is, um, in fact, um, a, a very interesting and that, that has a turn that is absolutely typical of Offenbach. Giro understood that, but at the same time, in this opera, the middle part, the belly of the harmony, is a little more substantially fed. Um, so it makes this a little easier for the ears. Uh, but still, he retains that formula, which is the strings really leading the harmony in a, in a very uh, a simple uh, accompaniment and a very earnest melody just developing itself with the great sincerity, sincerity and authenticity. Right. I think Hoffmann himself is so complicated and interesting that I want to go back to his character for a minute. Matthew, if, if he were a friend of yours, it's, would he be a particularly high-maintenance friend or would, you want him, or would you want him as a friend at all? Uh, he'd, be the, he'd be the kind of guy you couldn't see that often. <laughs> <laughs> Because he'd probably be drinking too much. And um, I know, uh, <laughs> yeah, I would say that, I mean, I, I think that uh, it, it'd be difficult. I think he'd be fun to have as a friend. He'd be somebody you'd want to be around for the entertainment value. I mean, it, when, they, when it's time for a song, we don't get much time in the prologue and the epilogue. It's not that long. We, it, it's basically just setting up what's about to come and the epilogue is just, it's over. But I think if, if somehow that scene were able to continue, I mean, what we, what we see very quickly is, oh, it's time for a song. Well, who's going to sing? It's going to be Hoffman. I mean, he's, he is a poet, and they know he's a poet. And maybe he's even, he's marginally successful as a poet. You know, I mean, uh, he's, 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 not, uh, he's not a slouch. I don't know, who knows but how much money he's making. And but he's full of life. I mean, absol- he's, absolutely. He's, that part is, is extremely... Uh, appealing. I mean, when, mm. when and he's, he's leading the pack very clearly in the tavern, for instance. Everybody, for sure. Everybody waits for him. Everybody loves him. So they're asking probably, where he is even before he's entered the stage. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're waiting for him. Mm. So, yeah. Cons- considering that none of the four ladies work out for him, what kind of woman do you think he actually needs to be happy? Uh, it's a good oh. thing he didn't meet my wife, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily for me, is what I mean. <laughs> if he'd met her, then, then maybe I'd be not married. But now he needs somebody special, you know. But here's the thing, and and I mean, I don't want to. I'm not gonna. I don't want to go so much into real life, etc. And how I feel about. I mean, I'm, I, my personal feeling is that yeah, there's one perfect person for every human on this earth. There's many people you might be able to be married to, and maybe even be marginally happy or really happy. But and Hoffman hasn't met that one perfect person. What she has to have in her, the woman who he needs, it's it's a, I mean, it's an open-ended question, I suppose. But I mean, you know, it seems to me that he needs somebody that somehow her presence in his life helps him focus on uh, on, on on say his art, um, helps him focus his energy. In a way that that would not uh, lead that doesn't lead him down the the path to the bar every night, you know. Right, I mean, and, and it's I, I think I mean it depends on which version because there are 
maybe we'll go into this, many yeah, versions yeah. for the reason I was exp uh, explaining earlier that he never really finished the piece yeah. uh, and that some of the material was lost. But I think if you look at the, 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 the general draft of the story, the, the morality, if any, is this guy is not meant to really be in any relationship. Uh, he's, meant, he's meant to be with his muse. He's meant to be with his poetry. And that's the place where he can really be himself. That's a great transition into the next question. Um, because there is a very important character, more important actually in the production we're doing because she gets her aria, or her big aria, I should say. Um, because she has two, but there's one that's very significant. And so this character suddenly becomes a major player in the opera, and that is Niklaus, who is also the muse of poetry. Now, Matthew, you basically play all of your scenes, or at least he, she, is on stage with you most of the time that you're on stage. So what does Niklaus slash the muse represent to you in the opera? Why do you think there is this special connection between Niklaus and the muse of poetry? Huh. Well, it's interesting. I, I'm sure, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if, it's the, if I have a minority view um, on this sort of thing. A, a large part of me wonders whether or not Niklaus is actually a real person. Mm -hmm. I, 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 it's, I, I, he exists, they talk to each other, but does he only exist in Hoffman's mind? I mean, if you want to get really, like, I don't know, how many of you saw A Beautiful Mind, this Russell Crowe movie, I mean, where he's, he's got companions, and they're real to him. Nobody else is aware of them. Okay, I mean, I, I mean I'd, say, I'd say Niklaus is, is, a, is a real person. Uh, I mean, and, uh, but for Hoffman, this, uh, for me, I think of Niklaus as, as if he is the muse, if he is Hoffman's muse. Mm. She, he, I mean, if it is, if they are Hoffman's muse, then he is just trying to drive Hoffman to create mm -hmm. further, deeper, better poetry, you know? I don't think of, uh, you know, it's, we don't end the, we don't, we end the piece, or well, maybe we shouldn't talk about how we end the piece. I don't know how many of you have seen it. But, uh, I mean, it's, uh, I can say it's not a hopeful ending. You know, it's it's a dark ending, mm. and um, but part of me wishes that the speech that the muse gives to him at the end is it would be an inspiration to create more, and um, so I, I wanted to ask both of you about the the violin aria. This is the big what I refer to as the big aria of Niklaus because there's a little sort of ditty that he sings in the Olympia act, but in the Antonia act he has this very profound statement. It's actually my favorite aria sung by mezzo soprano in the entire 19th century French repertoire. I think it's just a supreme moment in the piece. So I and and Emily Fon sings it absolutely gloriously. So wait till you hear her. Um, but what is this? What is he saying? He's basically saying in this aria that, you, saying, that the love of art is going to be your salvation. Am I right? Yes, but in this aria, the muse is saying, you see, the other woman was a puppet. The other woman was a projection of your imagination or of your glasses or of your neurosis. 
um, and she exploded, literally. Um, this woman is a real woman. This woman, Antonia. Antonia is a real woman. Uh, she plays the violin. You are a musician. Try to understand her through your art. And that will be your way to who you are really. So, um, and, and it, I think that's the way I understand the aria. It's, yeah. uh, it, it's at the same time saying art is very important. You really have a problem with your life. You have a problem with women. Here is a chance to meet somewhere with someone. You have a common ground you here. Have a common ground. Yeah, this is your chance, yeah. you know. And and, uh, and 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 somehow he doesn't understand what's going on there. It's not. It's not really there. No, he's stuck in the uh, stuck in the. She's beautiful, and I love her mode. Right. You know, what I mean, it's, <laughs> right. but it's true. This is that's that's the I, that's how I think of it as well. She's saying to him, look. She's a she's an artist. She has a soul. You, she has a soul. She is an artist. This is how you can. This is how you two can meet. This is how you two will will be together. And this is how you will finally really connect to your own soul, mm. you Hoffman. You know that's the thing. Uh, and he doesn't get it. Uh, but I really like what you said about the character of Niklaus maybe being a fantasy or not being there. Uh, and in in the other let's say, versions, you can see that Niklaus is the muse from the very beginning. She has an aria also, Offenbach had written an aria for this. If you take all the music Offenbach has written for this, it would be a seven hours event. So that would have meant um, opening night with the gala, you know, would still be going on right now. (laughs) So you you have to make choices. And and, and I think we made uh, fairly uh, good choices. But you have a first aria where the muse is uh, uh, explaining uh, that uh, uh, she, she, she's a friend of Hoffman, she wants to save Hoffman, so she's going to change herself in a schoolboy, an écolier, you know? And so you, you really understand that very clearly. And at the end, in the epilogue, this écolier, which was with Hoffman, and the muse is a character that is definitely a character that doesn't have the same status as the other characters, which are all real, uh, the muse is not real. You can see the muse is something that is abstract and who is going on hers to be his companion is then turning again into uh, uh, the muse herself. And there is this beautiful aria where she says, one is great uh, by love, but you are even greater by your tears and by the way you express them. Um, so that, that's somehow the morality of the piece. Has, and in the previous productions that you've done, yeah. has Niklaus been treated radically differently, the Niklaus and the Muse, as you know, from one production to I've the I've done other? production where it's totally uh, ignored that Niklaus is the Muse. And it's a real problem when you see the piece and you don't know that it's, it's quite confusing. Uh, and even when, it's tr- when people try to explain it, uh, and I, I think it's valid, but I think you, you really miss one dimension uh, if you don't understand that, that Niklaus is the muse. And then it's just an annoying boy tagging with, with, the, with the guy, you know. It's just there's, there's something missing there. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, at least I, I always, I have thought of it as you need to know that he is both, he is also she or right. him, the muse. You need, this is important because for, in a way, I, I would say that uh, Niklaus drives a lot of the action in the, in the piece. I, I, I see, in, I see, I feel like because Niklaus is present in, in, in all these scenes, 
you know, and this goes back to whether or not he's really a real, if he's real mm-hmm. or not. I mean, he is driving, if he is pushing Hoffman towards what, where he wants him to be as an artist, as a poet, as a, you know, then, then Niklaus is really driving the action. Right, you know? and, and, and Niklaus is probably can be viewed as another part of Hoffman himself with mm. whom he's having a conversation. And that other part of himself that he doesn't really understand, that he's fighting with, but that he's trying to save him. Uh, and th- also the ambivalence about the fact it's a, it's, it's a pan's role, you know, it's a woman, it's a man, which is a big attraction in the, the, the opera, the romantic operas and in the baroque operas, uh, is there. So this unconscious part of himself, which has also that ambivalence, I suppose, is, is in the air floating there. Mm-hmm. We haven't said very much about the production that Lyric is presenting, and I certainly want to get to that. Um, what do you think, the two of you, what do you think the greatest strengths of this production are? I mean, that's hard for me to answer, having never had a real experience in another production. Um, I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to know what others... I, I saw the production at the, that, they have, that they had at the Met, which was very fantastical and very... With a big emphasis on on um, the magic, and yeah, exactly, yeah. and I mean, it was very but the one that was new a couple of years ago. No, no, the old oh, the shank one. one, the oh, shank right, right. one that was. I mean, and it's. I mean, it's you know, people walking, coming up through the floor and walking through walls and appearing in fireplaces. I mean, really cool. I mean, so this was. No, I mean, it was very interesting. So, I mean, for me, what seems interesting about this is that um, it seems like. Uh, where it, because this, the stage is just an open space. I mean, there's no real set. There's no real furniture. Uh, you know, I mean, there's very little. It's very sparse. And I think in some ways that actually f- serves to put the focus very strongly on the people, you know, um, rather than distracting you with, uh, you know, here's this, you know, flying dog. And, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, mm. I, I never saw a flying dog. I mean, let me just, that has nothing to do with the Shank production in New York. But, uh, no, but, you know, I mean, it, it serves to really put the focus on the people who are on stage and what's happening to them and what they're doing and what they're saying. I mean, for right, you, right, it's No, no, I totally agree with you. It's, yeah. it's totally concentrated on the characters mm-hmm. and on the interaction of the characters. It looks good. I mean, you say there is no... It's not that there is no set. It's that the set is very open, and it, I think it does look good. Uh, it, it, it's quite impressive, but there is no tricks in the set that uh, take you away from what's happening really for the singer's characters. Well, there's one amazing trick, uh, which is the way Olympia is manipulated, right. which is incredible. And so, Matthew, I wanted to ask you, how... when 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 she is on a platform that is operating via a remote control from somebody off stage, how do you, when you have to dance with her, how does that work? <laughs> well, it kind of depends on how frisky the guy running the remote control is. <laughs> when he's feeling it, he's feeling it. Then, she, like on opening night, she really was moving, and it was, <laughs> it was, it was hard for me to. Hold. I couldn't normally. I will. I try to hold her hands and actually try and dance with her and try and hold on to her even as she's speeding up. And Spallanzani sings, "Hey, somebody stop her! Someone stop her!" And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, but at opening night, I could not hold on to her. And in a way, actually, it was interesting because she grabbed me and then she threw me, which right. you know, I mean, and, and uh, which she is what has happens. absolutely no control on the machine. No, she's just which on, must be the scary. 
precarious thing, yeah. you know. Yeah, she, she just does. have a kind of uh, ejectable chair in case there is a, 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 there is a panic button somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, she has a break. She can uh, actually stop the thing if she has uh-huh. to. Yeah. She, there is a break that exists. So, I mean, right. that's the panic button. I mean, yeah, yeah. she's heading off to the pit. You know, she can stop herself before, you know. But, uh, no, I mean, and it's funny because we actually had to talk a little bit about what would happen if there was a malfunction. And if, I mean, not just for her, but say the, say the, say the cart stopped working, you know, and then what would happen? And someone, someone would have, you know, and then, you know, there's scenes when I'm walking with her. And, of course, the dancing things, you know, I mean, like, what would we do? And we actually had to plan, we, we had a little planning session for what would happen. And, and um, you know, it's interesting. It's just a nice little element. The, I think the physical characterization that you're creating in this character is really remarkable. I mean, I get a sense that you're sort of relishing the theatricality of, of this piece and of this character. So what elements of the actual blocking that you've been given by your director and the sort of physicalizing of Hoffman have been the most interesting for you? Um... <clears throat> Well, it's been, I, I would say, it's, it's been interesting because, there's, like I said, there's no furniture. I spend quite a lot of time on my knees, and, um, I, which, is, which is difficult, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, but I, 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 I've tried. I tried to think of those things as uh, food for, for Hoffman's state of mind and Hoffman's, um, the state of his world, you know. So, uh, it's been an interesting that that in itself is an interesting thing, and he spends a lot of time on the floor. And I mean, really, you know, I mean, it's 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 a difficult thing. Technically, you have to think also about your voice and how you're singing. And when you're on the floor, I mean, what are you doing and how are you supporting and all these things. But uh, you know, I, I mean, that has been that has been an interesting challenge for me to try and reconcile these positions and these. You know, especially at the very end when he's he's the muse is holding him and he's singing this incredibly hard line, mm. and um, you know, and like trying to figure out how to get into a good place for singing, um, but still be dramatically um, keep the dr- drama intact. So I don't, I don't. I mean, the idea is we don't show you that we're working hard, right? Mm. I mean, uh, no. I mean, that's the that's what we always hope. You, you you hope that nobody's aware that everybody's just caught up in the drama, rather than seeing here's a singer having a moment where he's got to concentrate on singing, and now he can go back. You know, so I, I mean, it's it's been a it's been an interesting and, and difficult process in a lot of ways. But I mean, everybody seems to have some challenges in this because I mean, isn't Erin Wall singing her last lines flat on her back, having to trill on her back? Right, right. And well, then well she, she's dying. Go yeah. on, <laughs> But Alison Cambridge isn't as Julietta, isn't she on her back at some point? Yeah, and in the middle of the duet, she has to go at the um, uh, down upstage and 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 pick up a mirror to to steal his uh, reflection, you know. And at the same time, she has a high note and so on. Right. You know? So yes, and so and of that's course, opera, Roger. What do you want? <laughs> you know? yeah, that's right. um, every company that does this piece has a basic issue to deal with, a concern of which edition will we actually do. And I assume, Emmanuel, from the time that you agreed to do this production, that, was, that must have been foremost in your mind because it's not sort of a given with, with Hoffman what is done. So how did you make that decision as to which Hoffman this was going to be? It, it is always a, a, a challenge, uh, and this is a question that can 
absolutely passionate. You say that, I mean, make people totally impassioned about it. Uh, and you have a few fanatics who think it should be done that way and not that way or that way. Um, for the reason I explained earlier, Offenbach, we don't know what Offenbach really had intended and we don't know, even most importantly, what he would have done if he would have lived because these composers, they would revise their operas mm. when they would perform them and then they would be the Paris version, then they would be the Berlin, the Vienna version and so on. So um, what we know is in which order he had conceived the acts and said that has been, that is very clear now. Um, and we're doing it in that order. We are doing it in that order. What we know is that he did have in mind um, the, uh, the villains sung by the same character and also probably, I mean, certainly the women, Olympia, Giulietta, and Antonia, Antonia and Giulietta, sung by the same character too. Um, to find a victim that can sing those three roles is almost impossible. And uh, only Beverly Seals has been successful in it, but she, she's in a category in her home. And John Sutherland. John Sutherland did it. Uh, Carol Venice yes. uh, did Get it. Yes, at the net, yeah. Um, some of them more successfully than others. Um, f- I think from the moment you do not have that victim, uh, you, 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 you then ha- have to revert to something that's going to work with the, the singers and the cast you can have. Uh, and in my opinion, the Choudin's version, which is the version we're doing basically, which is the oldest version, um, and the one that is the closest to what was decided after the, the death of, uh, of Offenbach himself is at least the most effective, the most surely effective. Um, it's not necessarily musicologically very daring, obviously, um, and you have to maybe pick and choose all the, all the uh, numbers that you want to use according to the stage director concept and the cast you have. I must say that personally, after I have done all possible material and all versions, this version really works. And the other ones, they are interesting for people who have already seen this version, but they are just most of the time anecdotically interesting. So um, uh, if you want to see Hoffman for the first time, this is very good. Now, of course, I miss, oh, it's a pity we don't have that aria. Oh, it's a pity we don't do the ending with the muse, for instance, we were talking about aria and so on and so on. Okay, well, next time you do it, that's the way you will do it because you, you, you cannot have a seven hours evening. It's not possible. Yeah. You lose the audience. It gets, you, you just, you, you lose everything. So this is a very interesting version. This is a version that works. And, and, and um, also for technical reasons which have to do with the orchestration. Uh, this orchestration is all of Giraud in what we're doing, except for the violin aria, to, aria, to be honest. Um, in the other versions, um, you feel that other hands have been messing with it. Uh, and, and, that you, and, and it's not the same hand all along. And that's very annoying. That's really a, a, a problem because there is no coherency in the color and in the general development uh, of the piece. Now, 
if tomorrow, uh, if the lyric says, oh, this was great, we should do it again, I think then the lyric should do another version. Because now the audience has seen this and you should choose other, other elements uh, and then maybe have a, a concept that works with, with the different cast. But for a piece that has not been performed in this company for a long time, this is a sure bet. And I think this is... A, this is and from the reaction, at least, of the audience, unless we are as delusional as often is, <laughs> uh, I think it's working. Well, we've gone over our time, so I've learned so much during this hour. I want to thank both of you so much, Emmanuel Villon and Matthew Polinsani. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. 